the Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love. Just do it. Love God, love your neighbor, love yourself, and our world will be more just and more compassionate. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, and we have our conversation every week about what's going on in the world from the perspective of our Catholic social teaching. Tom Dobbins rounds up our guests for us, and Yolanda makes sure that everybody can be heard and that we have a good conversation. Hey, Tom, I got a question for you. I mean, um, you know, we have not been back in the studio since COVID, but through the uh, technology of Zoom, we've been able to do our shows. Um, What's your thought? How do you, what do you think? You like the Zoom? You like being in the studio? What's, what's your take on that? You know, honestly, I, I'm betwixt and between. Um, I did like going to the studio because uh, sometimes, as you know, we met really interesting people. You know, I remember one time we were in the studio and, and J-Lo was there. So I could say I actually was in proximity to J-Lo. Uh, and then I know uh, it was, and you were the one once here, we were on the elevator that time we saw Justin Bieber's uh, girlfriend and you, you recognized her. I didn't. So, you know, we actually have, you know, so we have the opportunity to see those, to see those folks. So that's kind of fun, but I like that zoom is so flexible. Um, you know, when you do it via zoom, you can have guests just about anywhere. Although we used to do it on telephone, I think zoom makes the conversation a little bit more personal. Um, so I like, I like the zoom call. I do. I do miss going into the studio occasionally. I think it was kind of cool. So Tom, why don't you just walk over into the studio? Maybe I don't. You, can just, <laughs> you just hang out in the studio and you know wait for interesting people to show up. That's true, but they would probably take. They probably let me do that for like fifteen minutes, and then you know they probably throw me out. <laughs> uh, not you, Tom. No, I I wouldn't throw you out because. <laughs> well, thank you, Monsieur. You're you're much kinder than maybe the people in the studio. Ah, <laughs> uh, that is good. So, how's your summer been going? Summer's been going really well, Monsignor. Real, I would say really, really good. Um, you know, I did get a chance uh, to do a little traveling. I went down to Washington, D.C. for a conference, and I, uh, I, I'm, I'm able to be, I, I did get down to Atlanta. So I'm at a conference for uh, the roundtable down in Atlanta. So I did get a little traveling in, um, but I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it. And actually, I know they say this is the hottest summer on record, Monsignor, but from my perspective, even the places I've traveled, they haven't been that hot. So you know, from my from my experience, I think the weather is just is just great. <laughs> okay, that's uh, that's good. Have you eaten much ice cream? No, actually, I haven't. I haven't eaten hardly any ice cream. That's a good point. I really haven't. Yeah. I know. I mean, I think you got to eat ice cream in the summer. I agree with you. I agree. I, I've been I've been I've been recalcitrant. I have to I have to correct that. I haven't oh. I haven't been eating my ice cream. <laughs> okay, so listen, I am delighted that you rounded up uh, really a very talented guest for us uh, this week, of Professor Charles Russo. And we're going to speak about a topic that is kind of very important to us. It is the issue of kind of the First Amendment and freedom of speech and religious liberty and discrimination, exclusivity, inclusivity. And so I'm delighted that we have somebody who is so, um, you know, so knowledgeable about that. So um Let's go to our, our first guest. Our first guest is Professor uh, Charles J. Russo, who is the Joseph Pasner Chair in Education 
in the School of Education at the University of Dayton. Um, Professor Russo, thank you for joining us on Just Love. Thanks for having me, Montini. It's a pleasure to be here and my honor. Thank you for having me. It's good to see Tom on the screen now. And good for you today. Yep. It's uh now I know our listeners can't see us, but I'm glad we can see one another. So um so since our listeners can't see you and they're hearing a voice, give them just a little bit of your kind of background, how you've been doing what you've been doing, how'd you get to be interested in this area? So Give our listeners a little bit of a, of a background on yourself. Sure, will do. Thanks for the opportunity. Probably like yourself, growing up as a kid, all I ever wanted to do was be a priest. Okay. I actually studied to be a Vincentian priest, entering with the goal of getting a PhD in theology. But as the community's values changed and their, and their uh, apostolates changed, I decided I wanted to be a PhD and a university professor more than I wanted to be an ordained priest. So I'm an incomplete person. I have a seminary degree, but I'm not ordained. I have a law degree, but I don't practice. And I have a doctorate in administration, but I run away from administration. I've been, been fortunate enough to teach at the University of Dayton for the last 26 years. I started at Fordham. I'm a native New Yorker, like most of you, I think, grew up in Brooklyn. Growing up, my dad thought Archie Bunker was a, a documentary. But <laughs> I, I taught at Fordham for three years. The cost of living in New York, you don't need me to tell you, was so high. We went to Kentucky, earned tenure there, but I... But being a lifelong practicing Catholic and active in our parishes, um, I wanted to be back at a Catholic institution, and I'm privileged to teach education law and issues involving education law and religious freedom. And so I follow these kind of cases closely. Knowing that you grew up in the Bronx, I'm a lifelong Yankees fan. Yay! Except for this year, they need help. Uh, If you could believe it, I get more excited over these Supreme Court cases when they come out than a baseball game. Well, you know, you know, we all got, we all have, have our, have our niche. So that's okay. That's okay to do that. No, you know, boy, I mean, I grew up, I grew up when you just wanted to know by how many games the Yankees were going to win the pennant. It wasn't whether they were going to win. It's by how much now these days, oh boy, oh boy. I mean, it really hurts one's ego to kind of admit that they're a Yankee fan. Oh, just not a good, not a good time. Uh, they needed a manager and general manager, but that's. I'm going to be oh. in New York next week, so maybe we can stop by and say hello. And Tom and I. All right. So you don't. So you don't like Brian Cashman. He's made some poor decisions, I think. All right. Okay. So. All right. So uh, I'm going to a game shortly, and so. Oh, you're right. Yep. So it's a good, good, uh, good opportunity to kind of look at what they're doing and say a prayer that maybe they might win. The day that I'm there, so uh, include um, include Aaron Judge's uh, big toe in your prayers. Yeah, that's true. That's true. He, you know, he, he's he's been prone to injuries over the years. But anyway, so let let's go to the topic now. The topic that we're going to talk about is the recent Supreme Court decision, and the Supreme Court decision had to do with. Somebody, I believe, designing a website for a couple that was going to um, same-sex couple who were being married. Um, Professor Russo, why don't you, I mean, I just said a little bit, let our listeners know a little bit more specifically what this case was about. Sure, Matthew, and thanks very much. And And I believe you've read one of the articles I wrote, and I think I sent a second one, and I'll be writing a much longer one with a friend. And I mentioned that 
Because as an initial matter, one thing I'd like to say, and by the way, feel free to interrupt me with questions or comments at any point. Great. Um, two things to know about this case up front. Number one, it was really not about religion. It's about free speech. And number two, despite what I think one of the natives of your home borough of the Bronx, Justice Sotomayor, said, it's not about legalizing discrimination. It was not requiring, it was not being able to require people to speak uh, on topics with which they disagree, something called compelled speech. The underlying dispute began around 2019. Lori Smith owns a company that she founded that works with uh, website designs, if you will, for weddings. But she also does social media management consultation, marketing on the, on the internet, branding strategy, and website management training, among other things. And as, as you and your listeners may know, about five years ago, a case, another case from Colorado, Masterpiece Big Shops, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission tried to mandate that a cake baker make a cake for a gay wedding. Well, he won, but not on the merits. That is to say, he won on the basis that as this case was coming up through the legal system, uh, the commission was discriminating against his religion. So the Supreme Court never got to the question of whether they violated his rights. That same law remained in effect. And so Lori Smith brought an action trying to enjoin it for fear that she would have been sued. She had not been sued, but she was trying to cut it off at the pass, if you will. And so she filed the lawsuit. She lost in the lower court, uh, the federal trial court in Colorado. She lost at the Tenth Circuit. But as you and perhaps many people know, she prevailed in the Supreme Court on the basis of a 6-3 ruling. I wanted to get some more background, but let me stop there. I don't want to talk the whole time. I'd rather have an exchange if, if yeah. you want me to. All right, sure. I think that would be that would be good. And again, I think, you know, I know uh, the First Amendment, um, which everybody talks about, it has two parts to it, doesn't it? One of them is free speech and one is about religion. Is that? Exactly. Well, in addition, also freedom of press and life. But yeah, right. two key, the two key parts of the amendment here are actually it's freedom of speech, but the underlying impact on freedom of religion. Okay. And so this was more about freedom of speech than it was freedom of religion? Yes, as a direct issue. In fact, when Lori Smith appealed to the Supreme Court, she raised both issues. She said, this impacts my right to the free exercise of religion, but the Supreme Court declined that question. They chose to take it up as a free speech case and as somebody who tries to study the court closely, and I've been privileged to do that for about 30 years now, as impossible as that seems, I think they try to avoid the real tough questions on religion if they could do it in another way. Okay. I think that question will come up, as you may have seen, without going too far afield, just in the last two or three days, the Seventh Circuit, in a case from Indianapolis, they have a student whose daughter attends that school, ruled that a Catholic high school did not have to retain somebody on staff who was gay because it was in the contract you couldn't do so. And the religion issue is going to get there, but it's just not there yet. So this impacts religion, but it's really a speech case. Okay. So um, when, as you kind of alluded to, um, the uh, the dissenting opinion by um, the Supreme Court justice from the Bronx, um, you said kind of was a little bit you felt off topic? How so? She, I mean, I can get you a quote if you give me 30 seconds here. 
Okay. But she accused the court of sanctioning discrimination, something it's never done before. And and again, I understand, and the court only takes very difficult questions. But to misunderstand what the court did, even as somebody who voted the other way, um, is just not accurate. She said, quote, um, she said a few things, quote, a backlash to the movement for liberty and equality for gender and sexual minorities. Um, she said the immediate symbolic effect of the decision is to mark gays and lesbians for second class status. She said that requiring Lori Smith to have to make a website containing information with which she disagreed does not limit her freedom of speech in any meaningful sense, factual or legal. Petitioners remain free to advocate the idea that same-sex marriage portrays God's laws. Um, it's just not accurate. And again, as I tell my students, that they only take tough court cases, the Supreme Court. Right. Yes, there was a more recent decision that was unanimous, but that's uncommon. And I understand there are difficult perspectives on it, but I think for whatever reason, she missed the focus. Right. So, so positively, positively, what I'd like to focus on the fact is that the Supreme Court said, going all the way back to 1943, there's a right against what's called compelled speech. We cannot make you say or publish or write something that you want. Everybody, regardless of lifestyle orientation, deserves respect. But an issue that I've tried to raise in a couple of articles I've written is that respect goes both ways. That it, it, you must respect the fact that my idea disagrees, and I think we learn to to disagree agreeably or disagree without being hostile to one another. So um, we're speaking with Professor Charles Russo from the University of Dayton, and we're speaking about a recent Supreme Court case which dealt with the First Amendment and uh, expressive designs uh, that the Supreme Court. Uh, ruled upon. Now, let me play a little bit of the of devil's advocate. Um, you know, um, how does this differ from, let's say, we all have seen these movies um, where uh, when either it was basketball teams or artists or groups that were traveling in the south of the country in, you know, going back decades, um, those who were Afro-Americans couldn't stay in the same hotels as um, the others. And I mean, I, I, pardon me, because I might be wrong on this, but I think um, some of the people said, well, wait a minute, we don't believe that the races should be mixed. So it's all right to kind of not, it's part of our belief that um, that the races shouldn't mix. And therefore, um, you can't force me to house Afro-Americans here. How is that different than what this case is? Good question. Thanks. Um, Lori Smith did not refuse to serve people who are gay. She just refused to put out a message that supports a gay marriage. In those previous cases, they were being denied basic accommodations. This was a case where they're at, she was being asked to communicate a message she did not buy into. She would serve, and she knew gay people. Jack, Jack, what's his name from the, the Masterpiece Cakes? I just blanked on his name for a second. Um, served gay customers. There was a case from either Washington or Oregon where a woman was unwilling to do a floral design for a gay wedding, but these people had been long-term customers. 
she was not discriminating because of their sexual orientation. She was saying, I just don't want to put out a message that appears as though I endorse it based on my religious right. And again, going all the way back to 1943, the Supreme Court has said, you have a right not to be compelled to speak. In 1943, very briefly, it was a case from West Virginia, Barnett versus Board of Education. Young kids whose parents, and I guess themselves, are Jehovah's Witnesses, refused to pledge allegiance because they think that's worshiping the flag or worshiping the country. Two years earlier, the Supreme Court had ruled they have to. Without alluding to World War II in 1943, I think there was awareness that the Nazis were trying to force people to do all kinds of things. The court said, hey, you can't be made to, to speak out about something if you don't agree with it. More recently, in, in 1995, a case from Boston, the Supreme Court ruled that the organizers of the St. Patrick's Day Parade did not have to include LGBT members because including their message would have, all, quote, altered the expressive content of their parade. And again, in 2000, a case, Boy Scouts of America versus Dale, from over across the river in Jersey, um, the court found that they could not force the Boy Scouts to include somebody who's gay as a leader because, quote, it interfered with the Boy Scouts' choice not to propound the point of view contrary to their belief. So I, I think the distinction, and the word lawyers tend to use is we distinguish things away, is that the fact settings are sufficiently different. She was not refusing to serve people who are gay broadly. She just did not want to put out a message Right. With her name attached to it. Does that make sense? Or does that explain? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense to me. Now I know you, you know, you were critical in your analysis that um the um that Justice Sotomayor missed the point. But there were two other dissenting uh, uh opinions there. Um did 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 any of them make arguments that you felt were more to the point? And as you said, these are difficult cases, but were any of their arguments more to the point of the case? Actually, I believe they just joined in her dissent. They, I don't believe they wrote separate opinions. Okay. All right. So they, they all joined in. But one point that I, I think I mentioned this to Tom, I'm not sure right. in, in prepping, but one of the things to um, that I found really interesting is this, the dissent in a couple of cases, going back last year to Dobbs, the decision involving abortion. Right. They complained about precedent. How could you overturn Roe that they perceived as a, um, right. a set precedent? By the way, I'm looking at the opinion. Sotomayor's opinion was joined by Kagan and Jackson. They did right. not have separate opinions. Right. But in last year in Dobbs, the court focused on the sanctity, if you will, of precedent. Including Ferguson versus Plessy? Well, if we still had precedent, Plessy v. Ferguson would be in and Brown would be out. Right. But what I found interesting in this case, and I, and I think I just sent a copy of the second article that might have this discussion, is that those the three cases that I just mentioned, and it was a later case involving unions that the court didn't mention, and they were more than happy to throw that precedent out the window. So I, I think they put the cart before the head of the before the head of the the horse ahead of the cart, rather, or the other way around, by wanting an outcome without taking a look at what the law said. Right. Right. And isn't this always the case? And it may not be. It certainly is not only with the Supreme Court is that. And I, I guess let me phrase it in the way that I think is 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 accurate. And there are other ways to phrase it. But it certainly seems to me that precedent should have the kind of 
it's the presumption that the precedent is correct. Agreed. But but that doesn't mean that there aren't occasions when it shouldn't be changed. It shouldn't be an absolute because if all we had was precedent, we'd never make any progress. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, to play off a word that you and I and most of the listeners are familiar with, precedent not infallible. Right. Court not infallible. In 1943, the Supreme Court ruled that people of Japanese American ancestry could be interned, just or interred rather, simply because of their racial and ethnic background. We realized that was a mistake. We have to change it. You know, something I think, if you don't mind, the bigger picture to keep yeah. in mind. No, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Since, two, since 2017, under the Roberts Court, there's been a, a one, two, three, four, five, at least a half a dozen cases where the Supreme Court has come down on the side of religious freedom. I, I think we're in, in what might be described as a golden age protecting religious freedom. The Supreme Court, as you may well know, had the so-called lemon test. That was a nightmare. Justice Scalia, in a dissent in a case from Long Island, described it as a ghoul rising from the grave to frighten the school attorneys and little children in Santa Maria's Long Island. Lemon is out. So now we're in a brave new era, starting in 2017 and ending last summer in a case from Maine, the Supreme Court has said that when when states make money available, they cannot discriminate against faith-based institutions simply because they're religious. So there's great protection for religion. Um, Three years ago, in a case from California involving what you might be familiar with, the ministerial exception, the court confirmed that religious leaders and religious leaders alone have the authority to decide who qualifies as a minister or, if you will, teacher, particularly in Roman Catholic schools, which are at issue here. So I think we're in a, a kind of renaissance of protection for religious freedom. And again, although 303 Creative is indirectly about religion, it's in line with that with that trend towards protecting First Amendment rights, because as I think you suggested before, they overlap so carefully and closely you can't really separate one from the other. Yeah. Let me stop there and let you get a word in. Well, I, I think, you know, what you've pointed out is, is I hope, is very, very informative to our to our listeners. Um, and again, what, you know, one of the perspectives I would add with regard to this is that whether it be free speech or freedom of religion, they're not absolutes. And I mean, the classic example is, you know, that people say, well, you can't shout fire in a in crowded theater. theater if there's not. Um, and I would, this is me speaking personally, I think the freedom of of religion doesn't, in my view, only my view, doesn't, prov- doesn't um, you know, mean that um, that religious groups can run schools that don't comply with some of the basic curriculum responsibilities that we say as a society that kids should should know. They can't say, we don't want our kids to know these things. And I mean, we have an issue right now in New York with some of the ultra-Orthodox Hasidic schools. I'm familiar with it. Yeah. And, and I tend to be sympathetic to saying that if we're going to have a society, you know, we have to have some standards by which, you know, kids receive an education, that that's our responsibility. So it's kind of not absolute in my book. 
Sure. And, and along those lines, I won't bore you given the time, yeah. there's a long line of cases going back to 1925 in Pierce versus Society of Sisters that recognize that faith-based schools, whatever their whatever the religion, provide a service to people. And something I was thinking about this morning as I was getting ready to come into my office, religion is not listed first in the First Amendment by chance. It's there because it's so central to what it is to, to be American. And, and a last point that I'm happy to keep talking with you that I would like to hope is that as we move forward, we can learn to disagree without being disagreeable. I don't think anybody would argue that if a neo-Nazi came into a cake shop where a gay baker operates and asked for a cake to be made saying something against gay people, that nobody would expect that to be done. And I'm not equating the two situations here. My point simply is, if that baker is free not to have to communicate a message with which sheer he disagrees, much more onerous, certainly, if it's a neo-Nazi, then why should a, per, a Christian or, or some other re, person of faith be required to communicate a message? The respect must, goes both, must go both ways. And again, Lori Smith did not discriminate against gays. She had customers who were gay. She just did not want to put out a message because her religious belief was that marriage is a relationship between one man and one woman. And that's not exactly anything new. As you know, the Judeo-Christian tradition and, and other tradition going back millennia that's been the belief. Right. And, and again, as you said, as you have, you have said, some of these areas are pretty difficult. The lines may not be always all that clear. And what I oftentimes find a little bit um, interesting about the, 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 the religion clause in the constitution, there's the clause about the freedom and there's a clause about the non-entanglement and the non-establishment. And sometimes you get uh, people who only want to speak about one side of that issue. And the, the, the challenge is, how do, you, how do we live out both sides of that? And I'm saying, you know, there's a built-in tension. Right. A phrase that's usually associated with the court is wall of separation. Words that are attributed to Thomas Jefferson, which he used, but actually go back to Roger Williams more than 100 years earlier. Right. The Supreme Court did not use that phrase until 1878 in a case from Utah involving members of the LDS Church in which it said, you can believe whatever you want, but if your belief violates the law, kind of like the discrimination you alluded to earlier, that's where the rubber meets the road. You can believe in polygamy all you want, but if you violate the polygamy statute, we can enforce that law against you. So there's a tension on the one hand, I can believe what I want. On the other hand, you can't establish a state church but you know that's the in a case some years ago involving prayer chief justice rank was talked about play between the joints right are those that talk about interstitial problems i'm not into william buckley and big words yeah. but the space between keys and a piano that's where some of these cases fall and and they're very difficult questions the bottom mm -hmm. line is though that everybody on both sides should respect one another even if we disagree i like met fans for example as you probably do even though I'm a Yankee fan. Yeah, but but I mean, but again, it's playing between the cracks. As a Yankee fan, I have a great deal of respect for Met fans. Okay. But to me, it's outside of the bounds. I can have respect for Boston Red Sox fans. Yeah. I have more sympathy for the for the Met fans. Well, yes, but um, you know, but but you know, but again, I think Boston Red Sox fans fall outside of that, you know, freedom of speech stuff. I would not permit that according to the First Amendment. Others might, but that's just kind of my biased Bronx opinion. Fair enough. But in the, in the context which we've been talking about, 
uh, I'll come in, perhaps the last comments on your time is short. If we're going to move forward as a nation, we have to respect difference on both sides of the table. Yeah. I think there's Again. enough people of good faith on both sides of the table that I think we can move forward and find some kind of happy medium so that religious freedom and free speech are both respected. Yeah. And, I, you know, Professor Russo, I, I, I agree with you, but I'm going to add a corollary, which creates the problem right now. And you pick the number. I think the overwhelming majority of Americans, we can work this out. OK, but I think pick a number. 15%, 20%, 15%, whatever the number is, on the extremes, don't want to work it out. And those are the people who are dominating the public debate. Those are the people who are dominating social media. And it makes it much harder for the middle 60, 70% to kind of work out those, those uh, reasonable compromises. Yeah, what's that expression, cancel culture? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and again, the reality is, and this is what I sometimes have a little bit of a problem with. If I'm talking to somebody on the left, they will fully admit that people on the right are out there to do things that are negative. But when talking to people on the uh, left, on the right, they'll talk about people on the left, but other, but neither side seems to want to recognize that the extremism is on both sides and the extremism on both sides is hurting us as a country as a whole. Absolutely. I mean, it's a circle, it's not linear. Right. Yeah. So anyway, listen, Professor Charles Russo, you're welcome back to Brooklyn and to New York anytime you want. <laughs> we'll be back next week. Uh, and thank you for taking the time. And I hope you have a good summer. It's my pleasure. Thanks very much. I'm always happy to come back if you ever need somebody to speak. Great. Thanks for the opportunity. God bless and have a good weekend. Go ahead. This is Charles Russo, uh, who holds a chair at uh, the University of Dayton. We were speaking about freedom of religions, freedom of expression, and in light of recent Supreme Court decisions. Tom, we'll take a break. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. Our world will be more just and more compassionate. We'll be back in a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just. And it will be more compassionate. Our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world through the perspective of our Catholic social teaching. Um, We're going to turn the tables a little bit in the next segment. Um, I just was on a trip to, to Israel. And I'm going to be a guest on my show. And... Graciously, Luz Tavares has agreed to kind of interview me on my trip to Israel. Now, unfortunately, Luz was all set to go to Israel on a trip, and then COVID came along. So she hasn't kind of made it yet, but I know it's on her bucket list to get there. So I'm delighted to kind of turn over the next segment of the show to Luz, and I'm ready for all of the hard, difficult questions that you want to ask. Sounds good. Thank you, Monsignor. I'll try not to be passive aggressive since I am a little disappointed that I haven't made my way there yet. Okay. I'm sure that's coming. Some year. <laughs> so listen, I, you've already um, introduced the topic. You've already told us that you were on this trip. So just tell us a little bit about what you experienced there. Just uh, give us a little bit of an of, uh, insight on what you saw. Okay, so let me fill out it, fill out the trip a little bit more because I've been to Israel uh, twice before, but this trip had a specific focus, and it was about fifteen of us, and the trip was organized by the UJA Federation, which is the major Jewish philanthropic organization in New York and actually in the United States, and there is a strong connection between American Jewry and Israel. And what the UJA Federation wanted to do was to establish like a little bit greater solidarity among some of the clergy who are working in different places in Manhattan and to raise our awareness and to provide more information about the terribly complex situation in Israel. So it was led by three Jewish rabbis, one of whom was Orthodox, one was conservative, one was reformed, and there were 10 Christian ministers who were on the trip. I was the only Catholic minister on the trip, but there was a Lutheran, a Methodist, Disciples of Christ, Mormon who were part of it. So that was the whole kind of background of of the trip. And we spent a week in, in Israel. So that, Luce, I think, gives our Listeners, it was a little bit of a specific mission of solidarity among ourselves who were going and to raise awareness and for us to become smarter about the complex situation that's there. So did you? Did you become smarter? What did you learn? (laughs) Um, Well, I don't know if it became smarter, but I probably became more informed. I learned a lot that was there. And you know, I think all listeners realize that there is a lot of complexity. And whenever there's complexity, there's controversy and there's tension. 
And so I guess one of the things that that I learned was how real the tensions are, how real the divisions are in Israel-Palestine. And I it just became so very, very intense in my consciousness about what a troubled land that is and has been since the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948 and the 1967 war. So I guess what I learned was how deep some of the issues are, how difficult they are, how challenging the divisions are in the country. And I guess spoken very, very broadly, the divisions between the Jewish state of Israel and the Palestinian Arabs who were in that land and still are in the land, but are now living in the Jewish state of Israel without a resolution of how those things are to be resolved in a way that, um, I don't want to say amicable, but deals with both of those realities. Yeah, and senior, you know, as um, as I was preparing for uh, this interview with you, I um, I was reading about the um, attack actually on my birthday on July third at the refugee camp. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? A little more about um, what happened sure. there? Sure, I can. Um, so, what happened? And it's the Janine, I think, the Janine uh, refugee camp which is actually in the northernmost part of the West Bank. And the West Bank is that territory which Israel kind of added to Israel after the 1967 war. And it's a pretty large land. If you look at a map of Israel, the West Bank takes in a lot of land. So this was northern. And if we kind of think about for Christians, if we think about Jerusalem as kind of in the central part of Israel on the east, but central from north-south, um, Galilee is all the way up in the north. Um, so this, this camp is more in the northern part of the country. And again, I think for our, our listeners, one of the things that uh, is helpful to understand why there are such tensions is because Israel is relatively small. It's the size of the state of New Jersey. So you have people, you have Arabs, Jews, you have Muslim, you have a variety of people living pretty close to each other. And, you know, sometimes that doesn't help in creating, you know, the tensions that are there. So this can, and again, going back a little bit. So after the 1948 establishment of the state of Israel, there was no place for the Arabs who were there, Muslims, Christians. And so camps were set up by the United Nations where those who were displaced could go. And whatever whatever political position one wants to take, it's obvious that if somebody displaces you from your home, that's got to be hurtful. It's got to create 
some real issues. So camps were set up by the United Nations and still under the jurisdiction of the United Nations to account for those those refugees. And again, I think, Bruce, one of the things for our listeners to be aware of is now I visited refugee camps in Iraq and Kurdistan. And kind of you see sometimes trailers, you see tents, you see things like that. That's not what these camps are. These camps, at least from what I experienced, and I didn't see everything, but one of the camps we visited outside of Bethlehem, it's really a part of the city in which that part of the city is kind of a little bit separated. And that's where um, the Arabs are living. And according to something that I've seen, there are over a million, maybe 1.5 million refugees from 1948 that are still in these camps there. Now, that doesn't mean they're all from 1948. It's their children and their children who are there. So it's still a part of the landscape of, of, of Israel. And so to answer your question now, because of the animosities and whatever, and we know we've read in the paper, there are terror attacks, there are suicide bombings, there are shootings, etc. that are there. And what sometimes is appears to be identified by terrorists, that some of them are located in these camps. And the camp that was invaded by Israel was targeted because it was thought that that's where some of the, it was a hotbed of where terrorist attacks were migrating. So that's what was happening there. Obviously, people saying, you know, it was a very aggressive, it was bulldozing of places, and people were hurt and displaced. But that's a little bit of the, you know, the background of, of what happened. So, uh, you know, Monsignor, I know this has, this is probably the most recent action we've heard about, but um, this seems to be a reality for the people there. Um, how did you feel? Were you Did you feel safe while you were there? So, um, I mean, you and I have gone on a couple of missions to, to different places, and I think we've always tried to make sure that when we went, there was relative safety and security that was there. However, whenever you go to a place where there is tension, there is is security issues. I myself personally didn't feel unsafe because I think the trip was well-planned. But I have to say what was palpable in the air, however you want to phrase that, was tension. And everybody talked about the hundreds of thousands of protests, basically by Israeli Jews against some of the actions of the current Israeli government. And a lot of opposition because there is the feeling by some Israelis that the government is too aggressive, is too, um, you know, putting expansion there. And this is the, the current um, protests are specifically about the reform of the judiciary, which would give the government a lot more power. So there was there was a real tension of of tension. Um, so well, I didn't feel unsafe. We knew it was an area where there was a lot of going on, and 
again, there's always reaction and reaction. And so was the shooting of some by police or by the military, was it justified? You know, I'm not in a position to say that. The only thing I can say is that it is real issues and it's real when for the people who are there. Sure. Uh, wow. Sound, uh, this is pretty intense, however. Um, thank you, you know, for giving us all of this information. I really appreciate kind of understanding a little bit of uh, what you were able to experience there um, and some of the things that, uh, that the folks living in this area are experiencing daily. But I want to pivot a little bit um, and just hear about maybe some of the Christian holy sites that you may have visited. Sure. And again, I want to pay a word of compliment to the sponsors and the organizers of the trip, which was the Jewish groups that did it. But they were very, very good in two things. One, enabling us to hear some of the other side of the story, which I thought was very helpful. So we we had lunch one day with a Muslim businessman in Ramallah who talked about some of the difficulties, the challenging, the discrimination that he felt from Israel in what he was doing there. So that was one. But the other part was the very, very much providing us with an experience of the Christian holy sites. And so for our, for our listeners, you know, when they hear about um, the feeding of the multitudes, well, we went there. We went to that place where the feeding of the thousands by Jesus. We hear of the Sermon on the Mount. We went to where the Sermon on the Mount was. We know the story of Peter being a, um, you know, being a married person who had a, uh, whose mother-in-law was sick, Jesus going to Capernaum to heal the mother-in-law of Peter. We went to Capernaum and the guide pointed out to us on the Sea of Galilee, kind of the wharves where the fishermen were. And that was probably kind of near the area where Jesus walked. And as he's walking, he says, you know, to Simon and to John, come, follow me. And he goes on a little further. So while I'd been there before, I think I got a better sense of some of those holy sites than I may have had on my trip there you know, 20, 20 years ago. So, so I would say that was a very, very important part of the trip. Um, went to Bethlehem and, you know, went in the place where, you know, supposedly uh, G- and Jesus, where the manger was, where, where, uh, where he, he was born. Now, again, Luz, I think, um, I think our listeners probably know that when you're looking at sites, you know, that are 2,000 years old, the archaeologists and the biblical scholars are saying, hey, you know, this is kind of for a lot of reasons where we think it happened, but many of the sites are not, you know, you can't 100% say, you know, here's where the plaque is that you should put it, but it's kind of reasonable that it happened, you know, that happened here. Some of the sites, there's more archaeological sites than than others. One of the places that we went, which I was really, maybe one of that I hadn't been to before, that I was kind of um, really, really moved by, 
wasn't, again, the best information about this, maybe not 100% historically accurate, was, was the upper room. And what happened in the upper room was the Last Supper. And being in that room inside the, or near the, as part of the old city of Jerusalem, was really, really nice. It was really moving. And, you know, it may have been the same upper room that the disciples went back to where Jesus appeared to them after the Last Supper, maybe the same upper room where they were there after the ascension, waiting for Pentecost. Now, again, I don't want to push it, but from a spiritual point of view, being in those places which you could relate to those events was a very, very moving, moving situation. That's wonderful. That's so exciting to hear. <laughs> um, you know, Monsignor, one of the things that um, I, you know, you and I have been on some trips together. Um, and one of the things that I think about is when we are visiting these new places and meeting their, their nationals, their people, they seem to be very receptive to Americans coming to see and kind of hear things firsthand. And um, you and I just returned from a trip to DC where we met with um, members of uh, Congress. Is, is there a role for the United States here in some of the conflict that's happening in Israel and um, did you have any firsthand conversations with anyone that perhaps asked you to e either relay a message back or take a position on anything? So I am not an expert on Israel. I'm not an expert on geopolitical realities. So let me just say that I think there is a mainstream consensus that Israel would not exist without the United States in terms of its support for the military, in support of all of it does that it does there, it, 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 there is a strong partnership. And the United States' interest in having a, you know, a strong democratic partner in that area is, is really very, very important. It's a very important ally. To be honest and to be direct, um, I'm not sure there was any specific role, except maybe to focus attention in that there needs to be steps to try to constantly continue to find a resolution, even though it may not be in the short term, to the tension, the, the, um, the conflict that is there because of the lack of a resolution from 1948 of the issue of the displaced uh, Palestinians who are still there. So um, anyway, so. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, um, I, I hear what you're saying and, uh, and I appreciate your comment on not being an expert, but um, just give us some of your major tech takeaways from this visit. It wasn't your first visit to Israel. So, Luce, I'm going to turn the table on you <laughs> because our, our segment has ended. So <laughs> why don't we do this again? We can continue it in another, another time. But I think we'll take a break right now. Just love. Just do it. Love God. Love your neighbor. Love yourself. Uh, this is the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
Now, let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. Um, I hope that you, our listeners, enjoyed the show today. Um, I thought the first segment was uh, was very, very enlightening. You have to judge the second session. I think we had a great interviewer for the second uh, segment of the show. The guest was eh, so-so, but I think the interviewer um, made up for it. I do think that she's got to kind of figure out how she gets to implement her bucket list and get to Israel. I think she would enjoy it very, very much. And, you know, I think we'll we'll continue, not next week, but a little bit further, our conversation on Israel, because I think there are a few other topics that we could cover. Tom, you have a job to do. You've been falling down on your kind of eating of ice cream. Everybody's got to eat ice cream for the summer. I think next week, maybe we'll talk a little bit about your uh, the social uh, action directors down in Georgia to see how to see how that um, goes. Um, so thank you, listeners, for being with us. I hope you're getting a little bit of re- relaxation this summer. And so let's. I just want to say, just do it. Love God. Love your neighbor. Love yourself. Our world will be more just. It will be more compassionate. Join us next week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.